Welcome to episode 491 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We are lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And as always, the views expressed here do not reflect the opinions of our respective institutions, universities, firms, clients, friends, family, or pets. Joining me today for the News Roundup, Jane Baumbauer, professor at the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications and Levin College of Law. Jane currently serves as the chair of the National AI Advisory Committee Subcommittee on Law Enforcement, Gus Hurwitz, Senior Fellow and Academic Director of the Center for Technology, Innovation, and Competition at the University of Pennsylvania, Cary Law School. He is also Director of Law and Economics Programs at International Center for Law and Economics. Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council. And I am Brian Fleming, formerly of the National Security Division at the Department of Justice and currently a National Security Partner at Steptoe. And the honored guest host of today's program while our intrepid host, Stuart Baker, is recovering from his weekend adventures. We have a lot to cover today, so we will jump right in and move, of course, to the epicenter of uh, privacy law in the United States, Idaho. And uh, we will throw we will throw it to Jane to tell us about an interesting ruling in an FTC suit against a geolocation data broker out of the District of Idaho. So this is a ruling that decided that the case that the FTC brought against Kachava can proceed. So in a previous ruling, the same court had had dismissed the complaint because it didn't allege harm well enough. And so the FTC amended their complaint. And now at this point, the judge thought that the complaint is sufficiently specific about what is unfair about Kachava's practices. The FTC's claim is indeed that the company, by collecting large amounts of data and then selling it to other companies, is engaged in an unfair practice, not a deceptive one. So in fact, deception was not even part of the claim. So I think that's what makes this a very interesting case, because most of the time the FTC has had to leverage it authority over deception by saying that a company has done something that's privacy invasive and that they said they would not do. Whereas in this case, everything hinges on whether basically data brokers are illegal under an unfairness interpretation. So I have some thoughts, but I wanted to hear Gus's first. Yeah, I I have some thoughts too, Jane. And jumping right in, you hit on a couple of key things here. First, that this is just a surviving a motion to dismiss at this stage. So we, we don't have an actual decision here yet, but it is a pure unfairness claim, something that we're going to come back to a little later in our discussion with another recent FTC case. The The way that I read this case, and I, I should also just mention back over the, the summer, there was some discussion about due process issues in this case following the Supreme Court's Axon decision and whether this could be a vehicle for constitutional challenges to FTC-related authority. And none of that is implicated at this point in this case. But the way that I most read this case is in context of both the FTC's unfairness authority, which we'll come back to, but also the FTC's missing, curiously absent after a year and a half commercial surveillance notice of proposed rulemaking or advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. So rewinding to two summers ago, summer 2022, I guess it was, the FTC said, hey, we're going to be doing this rulemaking on commercial surveillance. And the data broker world is part of the commercial surveillance world. 
And that ANPR, um, Advance Notice of Rulemaking, gave several bases for authority for getting into, for regulating commercial surveillance practices. And one of them is unfairness. And the fascinating thing about how this case is proceeding is the court wanted very specific examples of harm in order to allow this just to survive a motion to dismiss. So it isn't a, we think it is likely, we think it's possible, we can come up with ways that these practices could possibly be harmful to consumers. The court wanted something more concrete than that. And do you think they got it, Gus? Uh, that's, that's, where I'm, that's where I'm scratching my head a little bit. So I, I will concede I haven't thought through the specific allegations enough at this point. Uh, so I, I don't have a strong opinion there, but it's worth noting, as you rightfully raise the question, Jane, a motion to dismiss assumes the truth of the factual allegations that the FTC brought. So the FTC pointed to actual harm and the court says, OK, if these claims are true, is there a, a claim that can be brought here? And I, I think that this is very problematic for the unfairness basis of the commercial surveillance ANPR, which may be one of these days the FTC will uh, actually release an, a notice of proposed rulemaking stemming from and possibly following this case with greater emphasis on unfair methods of competition and deception bases. Yeah, so maybe this is them dipping their toe in and seeing what the court thinks about this as a theory of unfairness. The harms to me seemed simultaneously too specific and too broad. So, I mean, even even though I tend to be kind of a pro big data type of person, if it proves to be the case that Kachava really does allow for completely unrestricted access to identified, highly detailed data, not only on where on, on geolocation, but on specific apps that people use and their health health histories and whatnot, then I think this would be a good case for unfairness since I'm open to the FTC proving that. But there are a couple of things that make me wonder what Kachava is going to say in the answer that, you know, I think they're relying on the idea that the screening process and the $25,000 that anyone has to pay to get access to this data and the use limitations are kind of going to be seen as not enough of a check on misuse. So then otherwise, they are basically alleging that collecting, using, and dis or sharing, you know, detailed data is a privacy harm. That is a harm, period. And that's not something that any law or common law court yet has said. And I think for good reason, even some of their specific examples show that this has potential First Amendment implications. You know, this is about, this is really about targeted advertising um, and maybe also about political communications, even worse in terms of First Amendment conflict. And so then the hypotheticals about also, you know, harassing abortion providers starts looking like a little bit of sort of highly speculative misuses in a sea of potentially... Jane, are you cases. suggesting that uh, IMS is going to be a relevant case once again? Well, I keep thinking that, but then defendants don't like making First Amendment claims. It's, it's I find it very strange, but it's, it's true, so... The only thing I was going to offer on top of this is, thankfully, this is not what I do day in, day out any longer, but based on 
tapping into my civil litigation the recesses of my civil litigation brain, obviously, this is, you know, alleging particularized harms to survive a motion to dismiss is not typically all that difficult. So the idea that the second go round here has passed muster is it's somewhat noteworthy, but not by any stretch a guarantee that there could be an ultimate success here for FTC. And secondly, if they're now embarking on a phase of this litigation where there's going to be some discovery and getting into some of the details of exactly as Jane said, there's sort of a a little bit of an odd fit or odd feeling to some of these allegations of harm, presumably if this proceeds, that this is going to, you know, we'll get to the bottom of that one way or the other. That also raises for me another question, which is maybe there would have been a better way to get at this information because I've, you know, there's other authorities, whether it's FTC or other authorities that are certainly possessed by the US government to get at and understand perhaps better the way that some of the data are being used here by data brokers. And so, whether that's investigating for other reasons, issuing subpoenas, other things like that, there's certainly other ways they could get at that and perhaps could have had a better, more concrete picture of how this is actually playing out in, in reality. But you know, we, sh- two, we shall see. Two quick Go ahead, things yes. to uh, respond to there. First, thank you for emphasizing, again, the motion to dismissiness about this case. I think that Kuchava is likely to continue litigating this case. But if you are an FTC watcher operating in the data security privacy space, a motion to dismiss is not a win. The FTC did not win the Wyndham case. They survived a motion to dismiss and then Wyndham settled. It's amazing how often I see pro FTC authority folks pointing to the Wyndham case as an example of, oh, the FTC won. No, this is a motion to dismiss. Everything was assumed in the favor of the agency. So it's very easy to overread these cases. And the second point, Brian, that you raise is really a a great one. This discussion fits into a much broader discussion about the Stored Communications Act and law enforcement access to privately held information. And to the extent that that is a concern in cases like this, then one of the better solutions to those concerns is let's address how the government can obtain access to privately held information for investigation, government, law enforcement sort of purposes. Yep. A topic we're going to come back to a few times throughout the episode here. So I think that's actually a good pivot to our second item, which is also a personal data related item. And there was news that came out last week that the White House is about to issue an executive order, which is going to restrict foreign adversaries from being able to access personal data of U.S. persons. And so we're expecting, as we sit here, to, I assume this is a topic that's probably going to come up again next week and, and perhaps even in the future on, on a number of occasions. But we're expecting an, an executive order to be issued on this this week, the week of the 12th. The way it's being portrayed, the authority is being set up as a DOJ and DHS would be the kind of co-leads on administering this and putting out regs on this that would restrict certain data that goes to countries of concern, which of course is the term of art that is used in a number of places now, which is top of that list is China. And then there is always the reserved right to add additional countries to that list down the road. This This would implicate data brokers. It would implicate third party agreements, investment agreements, other ways in which it is provided that U.S. person's data is going to be sent abroad, in particular to China. And again, in sort of thinking about this, 
First of all, I, I don't think any of this is terribly surprising, given that this has kind of been long held up as a gap that exists in some of the national security authorities in terms of preventing this. CFIUS has been very attuned to this issue for many, many years. But of course, you need a foreign investment that would fall under the jurisdiction of CFIUS to regulate something like this. There is now a new outbound investment executive order that is also pretty narrowly designed to cut certain capital, certainly, from flowing to China that has these types of things in mind as well. But this is new territory. And of course, industry has pushed back. Certain others in the in the USG have pushed back, it seems, in terms of how this is going to be implemented, what the economic impacts are going to be. And of course, as with many of these new executive order created initiatives, there is a provision apparently for further report and study as to sort of what the impacts are, how well it's working, and the rest of it. So I think a pretty, you know, frankly, not again, not an unexpected, but a fairly significant new new step and new authority that we're about to see. Gus, I don't know if you have you have thoughts on that, but you know, it does it does sort of tie into what we're we're just opening with as well, but more explicitly perhaps on the national security side of things. Yeah, I think that you hit the big things based on what we know about this. I, I just add a note of uncertainty and a note of academic interest. The note of academic interest is, of course, going back for 25, 30 years, we've been having this discussion with the European Union about data flows between the US and the uh, European Union. And this is going to be compared to and discussed US versus China compared to European Union versus the United States. Very different interests at stake here. But there will be a lot of academic style discussion, I'm, I'm sure. The other is a lot's going to depend upon what actually is in the executive order and how it's structured. It bears emphasis that at this point, it appears that this is going to be limited to bulk data transfers. So this isn't ordinary day-to-day -day data flows, but this is, I have a million user records moving those all at once to, let's just be honest, China. That's the sort <laughs> of thing we're talking about. And it, it's unclear to me at this point whether this is being limited to providing data to Chinese firms. So you can imagine a data broker, let's say, I don't know, I'm Kuchava. I've got a million user records. This might limit me from sharing those or providing those to a Chinese firm or the extent to which this would apply to U.S. firms or other firms that are doing business in China, retaining or having that data in China. So if yeah. I'm Microsoft, can I have user data stored in China. Yeah, that scope's obviously going to be critical. They're touting this, the White House is touting this as narrowly tailored in response to industry and, and other concerns. So we we will see, agree 100% that it's very different if it's, if it's just sort of these bulk data transfers for data brokers that are mostly what is being covered here as opposed to perhaps more day-to-day, run-of-the-mill, just kind of business operational data that would flow back and forth to China and also, I, I would just add sort of one, maybe one other final thought that ties back to the Kachava discussion, which is, you know, for those who, and, and presuming that most listeners of this pod are well aware of this, but the idea here is, and the fear is that the aggregation of this data by Chinese intelligence or military is going to be used in ways that can really target and understand U.S. activities, the activities of our military, the activities of our intelligence services, U.S. government employees or people working in other sensitive industries, and that, that could be exploited, obviously. That's sort of the, that's the big fear now with AI 
models and other things kind of coming online and being you know deployed to serve that purpose there's obviously the fear that more the more data the more ones and zeros that they have access to the more harm they may be able to do and so this obviously is an area i think from the new executive order that is explicitly tied to a national security related concern the kachava unfairness you know i think there's some of that it feels like to me that's kind of underpinning some of this in terms of the ftc being interested in that but it's maybe not as explicit and there's there's other concerns as jane pointed out whether they'd be first amendment or otherwise that have to be sort of counterbalanced there but in any event i think this new executive order will we, you know we're we're playing wait and see but I, but i think certainly worth flagging given that once it's fully implemented could have a could have a pretty big impact potentially so sticking again with data and with privacy concerns i'm going to turn it to nate to this could be like a recurring segment on the pod i think which is like what's what's happening with 702 reauthorization I joked before we ever got on air that I think the last time I hosted, Nate and I might have had a similar discussion about this like almost a year ago. So, so Nate, what's the latest and what's going on on the Hill in terms of trying to get something sorted out for a more, more than just a uh, stopgap reauthorization? Yeah, the um, Republicans have apparently been talking about bringing a bill up for a vote, possibly this week or next. You know, the big impediment to that is they don't actually have a bill to bring up for a vote quite yet. That will make things a bit challenging. And frankly, you know, for as you were, I think we're implying there, Brian, I'm a little skeptical that they can pull it together in time. We do have the April deadline looming when it will expire. And usually that is a forcing function that will require some kind of action, either another short-term extension or something permanent. But back when, when I worked on Capitol Hill on these issues, the politics were very different from what they are now, right? You know, everybody was kind of using some fear mongering and the national security needs to push FISA authorization and then reauthorizations through. And today you have, you know, on the Democratic side, you have a bit of a split caucus between more national security oriented folks who want the provisions reauthorized with some, maybe with some modest changes. And you have more privacy minded folks who would like to see more significant changes, obviously. But the Politics, I think, are really hard on the Republican side, where you have probably two similar groups in their caucus, though both much smaller than what you see on the Democratic side. And the third and and dominant group is the MAGA faithful contingent of the Republican Party. And, you know, I think as many of us know, this is a group that lives in a world that's largely devoid of facts and, and they're uninterested in actually governing. And I think the speaker and and others who are sort of trying to negotiate some kind of compromise here are going to face two principal challenges. And, you know, the first is really that their problems with FISA have relatively little to do with 702. There have been some 702 specific concerns that they've raised, but a lot of their concerns grow out of the Trump-Russia investigation and the Carter Page debacle for the FBI. And those all relate to other provisions of FISA that you can find in Title I. And second, and probably most importantly, again, nobody knows really what they want. Everybody knows what their their grievances are with FISA to a degree, but nobody really knows what they want to do about it quite yet. And so they don't have a proposal. And, and as we saw recently in the context of border security, for example, this is a, a precarious position to be in. I mean, Trump was just out within the last couple of weeks on a campaign video spent, you know, 
a not insignificant time on FISA, an obscure statute that for whatever reason, you know, despite people's lack of familiarity with it, he thinks he can gain some political advantage out of it. And again, nobody knows what he wants to see. And if, if they come out with a bill that he doesn't like, it's going to be dead on arrival in the House. And so, you know, I think they are really caught between a rock and a hard place on putting something together unless they can get likely his campaign to bless something as well and get possibly more challenging, get their fearless leader to stick to that and support it once it gets to the floor. I, I think for people who would like to see it reauthorized, whether you want to see changes or not, it's a bit frustrating, right? I think there are some serious proposals out there on both sides. You know, Stewart, for example, has has written with, with some colleagues about a sensible path forward to address some of the concerns that Republicans have identified You've got privacy advocates and and Democratic member of Congress who have very serious proposals out there to improve some privacy protections in the bill. And the big question is whether we can corral the House into doing something productive. Yeah, and just as a few data points for a few for folks who aren't tracking this as closely, you know, there's to Nate's point, there's kind of a throw everything against the wall approach in terms of some of these proposals that are trying to be squeezed in here as a, you know, square peg round hole along with whatever bills are being worked on, you know, everything from using the data to to vet immigration related individuals and families to using it against Mexican cartels and using it against Chinese fentanyl producers and in, including all or all sorts of other things. So it's kind of it's kind of a smattering of those types of highly politicized issues that they're trying to, you know, kind of attach to this. And it doesn't seem, based on where we are today or sort of what the Republicans have shown themselves to be capable of pushing through to date, that we're going to see a bill, it seems unlikely, that's going to hit the floor. And, and maybe we're going to be limping forward with another short-term extension that gets tacked on to another one of the broader authorizations. I think that was the point in the, I think it was a Bloomberg article that, that was out last week that sort of seems to be a number of, a number yeah. of folks sort of seem to think like, there's no chance this is going to get sorted in the next week or two. And we're likely looking at maybe it gets crammed through with a, a long, you know, a, lar- a larger government funding effort at some point in the next month or two. So we will stay tuned. The never ending saga of 702 and how people have sort of misrepresented and misconstrued it for their own purposes is uh, is not any anytime soon, unfortunately. You can pencil it in as an agenda yeah. item on every podcast between now and mid April. Yeah, I think that's, April, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Sticking with another another interesting, very explicitly national security topic. There was a get-together, an event that was hosted in London last week by the UK and French governments and a number of other governments to talk about spyware and use of spyware by governments or, or curbs, perhaps, on that use that should be considered. So, so Nate, what's the, what's the latest there and, and anything we can take away from the, the gathering of who was there, what they discussed, and maybe who wasn't there in terms of where this may, yeah. may be going or not, or not going? Both. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's something telling there for sure. I, you know, I think it was it, it was convened by the UK and France and included a number of European allies, not all European member states, but a number of of important ones and I think in that way it represents some important progress, right? And this group is calling for the development of principles and policy options to balance human rights and security interests and really to ultimately develop some kind of international legal system 
to govern the use of spyware. And as you were alluding to a bit there, I think there are a few interesting things about it. One is, you know, the statement they put out doesn't seem to lead anyone toward banning spyware outright, whether it's the development or dissemination or use of it. It's about putting rules around it. And it's not surprising to me. I think even some of the the key governments who are leading this effort, I think, view these tools as important, particularly in a world where there's widespread deployment of strong encryption and you know, law enforcement and national security investigators have been pushed closer to endpoints, which, as we've seen, is much less well regulated and contains a lot of more significant privacy issues and human rights issues. But I don't think we're going to see any product out of this process that results in any kind of ban, but it would be great to see some stricter rules and and stricter oversight mechanisms imposed on this. And, you know, it again, it, it includes the UK and France. The US has, within recent history, taken some important steps to try to curb the use of spyware as well by imposing sanctions and doing some other things that, that I think are valuable. So I think there is there appears to me to be a coalition of governments who are trending toward trying to do something about the widespread and uncontrolled use of these tools. And the world is likely, you know, as we've seen, not only in this context, but in a number of others in recent years, the world's kind of going to devolve into one of a group of countries that want to do something about this and another group of countries that very much do not want to do something about this. And I think people often point to that as as a flaw in the system. And, you know, while there's something to that, I think overall, it's still good to see progress. I think that if these countries can bring something together, and even if it's, you know, a subset of the, the world and we don't end up with truly global rules to govern the use of these tools, at least you do a couple of things. One is you draw a line in the sand and you show the world who's on each side of that line, right? And, you know, Russia and China, I think we we can all assume where they will land in this, but there will be many others where they'll have to make a choice. And and then second, hopefully over time, that kind of pressure will help to change the behavior of some of those countries that even initially end up on the wrong side of that line. So... Yeah, it feels you know, to me like this is, you know, it's a tiptoeing towards some kind of global norms on spyware use, right, and and accountability. And the fundamental problem that I think you put your finger on there was even for even for those who are trying to convene this, I would include the United States in this, obviously, you know, we sort of want to have our cake and eat it too, right? We want to impose rules, but we don't yeah. want to take off the table that this is a tool that we would reserve the right to use as well. And so hitting that balance or trying to find the right kind of cost benefit there to to sort of hit that sweet spot is is difficult but i agree i think the fact that there's at least further discussions kind of now earmarked for the future i think that's hopefully we we won't take too cynical a view of that stuart may feel differently if he were here but but he's not here so he doesn't have a say today the sunny optimistic view is that i think what you and i are both saying which you know cautious optimism perhaps that there's there's at least a willingness to engage and and tiptoe forward of course Israel was not yeah. present. That was noted by in many different circles, not yeah. surprisingly, perhaps given the conflict right now. But still, that's obviously a big that's a big sort of blinking light for this discussion in terms of where, where they come down and, and what their positions are going to be. So 
in any event, I think an interesting yeah. point in time, and then we'll we'll sort of see as things progress what that really leads to. Yeah, your your tiptoe comment I think is really right and important. You know, I do see that as kind of what they're doing here. I wouldn't be surprised to see something initially that falls short of some kind of formal international agreement, and as you said, as sort of a public statement, a you know Paris peace call kind of thing where countries and private companies are agreeing to a particular set of rules or something like that. And then, you know, hopefully that keeps building momentum towards something real and, and enforceable. Yeah. All right. Well, let's pivot to something completely different. And we're going to throw it back to Gus and Jane to talk about a really fascinating development that came out last week relating to a, a new streaming app that has been announced. And so I'll toss it to Gus to talk about that. So I'll uh, start by saying I, I've I had suggested that we pair together a couple of stories for this segment, and it might not be entirely clear how it goes together or how they all go together. Uh, we leave Jane, it. We leave it to you to weave to weave that magic, Gus. Yes. You and Jane can do it. So I, I see Jane nodding. Yeah, no, it's all you, Gus. Go ahead, <laughs> J- Jane. Uh, d- definitely want your take on some of these. So the two really separate stories, ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers have announced that they're putting together a new sports-focused streaming app. The other is a deal that Amazon has struck with a European company called Reach to figure out how to do targeted advertising and share data for targeted ads in the post-third-party cookie world. So the the background there, as folks uh, may or may not know or remember, last year, Apple Safari started to kill off third-party cookies, and Google is now in the process of doing that this year with Chrome, and advertisers rely on third-party cookies to track and identify users across sites. So how the heck do these two stories go together? Well, in, in my mind, they're both about the changing economics of the online media ecosystem and how things continue to change and develop. And it's a reminder that they do continue to change and develop. And heck, I'll I'll throw in that Amazon has started to roll out its new $2.99 surcharge to not have ads in Amazon Prime Video, and some people are pulling their hair out saying, oh, Amazon, uh, this is the enchidification phase of the Amazon Prime product, where they, as the evil monopolists, start to turn the screws and extract rents from customers. And what in the world are you talking about? The online streaming marketplace is way, I don't like to use this phrase, but too competitive. There are too many options. It is confusing and frustrating for consumers. And we are back in the recableification, rebundling stage of the streaming ecosystem because consumers want to be able to find the content. So the ESPN Fox Warner Brothers deal, or the day recording this, the day after the Super Bowl, we've got two things going on here. First, getting sports online for streaming. We've been seeing that over the last couple of years, but really consolidating it. But also, if you go back 20 years, ESPN was always the anchor tenant of the cable bundle. They were 10 to 20% of the monthly cable fee went for sports. And that was one of the drivers of unbundling folks who didn't want sports. They said, hey, why am I paying so much for cable? I don't watch all the sports. So they started to unbundle and go to other sources. And now the sports side of that is being refactored and 
brought into the streaming world in a consolidated sports bundle. I think it's fascinating. I think it's interesting. And it shows how dynamic and how much change and competition and development there continues to be going on here. And then we've got the ad tech story. We've got the changing advertising ecosystem and yeah, third-party cookies, everyone hates them. Everyone hates uh, their privacy concerns, I guess, maybe. Jane, I don't know if you want to weigh in on that. I personally don't <laughs> mind being tracked that much online because it allows things to work and me not to need to pay for a lot of things. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's the angle I was going to kind of pick up on is that one reason you're seeing so much dynamism is that there has been so much pressure. And I don't think it mostly comes from consumers. I think it comes from regulators and from kind of popular media. But there's been so much pressure to do away with third-party collections of data that have been the lifeblood of content production in the internet age. And not just content production, I should say also like, you know, data-driven apps and basically startups, any media startup that doesn't charge money. And so... You know, I don't think that Google's killing off the third-party cookie should be seen as a as progress necessarily. We may, as consumer advocates, you know, come around to eventually thinking that this didn't make our options better. Like when I think about who the winners and losers are from moving from from behavioral ad- advertising to contextual advertising, my understanding is that this reach company that you mentioned, Gus, is is actually just improved right. contextual yep. advertising. So we're going back to the kind of like, yeah, broadcast era. So who are the winners? Okay, so it's content, especially for rich people, but in any case, content that really pigeonholes people so that ads know, advertisers know who they're getting, which eyeballs they're getting. It also helps platforms because they have their kind of home screen as they're, you know, with lots of different types of content to be able to better pigeonhole the, the people who are looking and they have a lot of great first party data to use, you know, rather than third party, first party. The losers then are kind of general interest content. So I think we will expect, we, we should expect to see more paywalls, more consent screens, because I think there are going to be a lot of companies that scramble to do, to collect their own data now. And, you know, we, we'll be able to know something about our fellow audience members by seeing what advertises on our, in our feed. I think. So that'll be interesting, I guess. One last thing to tie these disparate threads into a bow. This is why the Amazon two ninety nine fee for ad-free content is so fascinating to me. What a lot of folks in the US and especially Europe want is they hate the ad-based ecosystem and want subscription-based models, or they want stuff to be magically free and that's not going to happen. Well, Amazon is telling us that in a competitive marketplace for streaming video, there is a lot of revenue to be brought in and possibly not enough revenue to be brought in just from subscription. You have to do ads. That is a big piece of the revenue pie. So the Amazon Prime story is a stark, stark reminder that subscription isn't enough. If we want widespread access to broad content, Ads always have been and probably always will be part of the revenue story. And we're cutting off the nose to spite the face. So I was actually going to pose a question to pick up on something you said earlier, Gus, about sort of fragmentation in the streaming ecosystem and now kind of the rebundling or bringing back together the, the something much more similar to just traditional cable as it existed, you know, sort of 20 years ago or something. Would you, looking at your crystal ball, I take it that from your comments, you think probably not, but 
I'm not an antitrust or competition lawyer. Do you think that something like this, the you know, the ESPN, Fox, Warner app or team up here is something that might get a hard look from FTC or somebody else for, through that lens and potentially to try to block it? Yeah, I'm sure that FTC or more likely DOJ, one of them is going to take a very serious look at this. But there are very likely going to continue to be other non-streaming sources to get this uh, sports content. And the sports content at this point is so fragmented or for that matter, not even available on streaming. I expect this won't present antitrust challenges, but there, there definitely is going to be scrutiny and a lot of discussion about it. As a quick aside, my 10-year-old son, who is very much a new media brain, has been castigating me for a long time for why we haven't cut the cord and got rid of cable in my house. And I always point to sports as the reason. And he saw this that article and said, see, dad, now we can get rid of cable. And I said, well, we'll see, buddy. We'll see how this all plays out. But I'm still not getting rid of cable. Not anytime soon, at least. Okay. So moving on to the next story. So Nate, interesting item that we saw featuring some comments by Ukraine's head of cybersecurity for their security service, talking about what they've been up to with their own cyber ops and and attacks vis-a-vis Russia since the war broke out. So what do we take from that? Yeah, I mean, I think the big news item here, which is reflected in some of the headlines, is acknowledgement that they've become more offensive-minded over time that they've shifted away from purely defending against Russian cyber attacks and turned a little bit more toward using cyber tools for purposes of gathering intelligence in some cases and and in some cases reportedly even to support battlefield operations and advance their own battlefield objectives. They've been unusually transparent about this in some ways. That's that's where I was going with my yeah, with my comments. Some specific attacks that they've they've engaged in. Now, you know, I haven't seen any independent confirmation of these things, and the targets of these have been pretty quiet so far, not surprisingly, but they've at least been willing to say say publicly that they've done some of these attacks. And I think two things sort of jump out at me. One is, you know, it's it's not surprising that they're doing this really at all to me. The nature of it is still a little opaque, right? I think, you know, at least some of it or a lot of it is is geared toward intelligence gathering. As I said, some of it may be more of what the U.S. government would, I think, brand, shall we say, as defend forward and still try to categorize as somewhat defensive in nature. And it's, it's possible that thing, some, there are some activities that go beyond that and some would, some would categorize as blatantly offensive in some ways. And the second thing that sort of comes to mind for me is, you know, this again is an area where the international legal rules on the use of these capabilities is still a little bit undeveloped, shall we say. And, you know, there aren't any specific treaties or international agreements that cover much of this. The legal rules are done through precedent and and through analogies. And as much as maybe some of us want to look at this and say, yay, go Ukraine, nice job, fight back, defend yourselves. It is important to remember that, particularly with so much publicity around it, that these activities will at some point serve as precedents when others you know, in the future are looking at trying to determine whether it's appropriate under international law to engage in certain activities. And so 
to the extent that these things are used and publicized and go uncriticized or or endorsed by other countries, it could have a precedent setting. My immediate thought, well, I went right to where you did in terms of this is unusually candid to be putting this much out in the public domain. My brain still goes back to sources and methods and and those types of things. And and why would you why would you sort of let this much loose publicly? But reading between the lines and, and some of the comments toward the end in particular, I, I think also another point here is that they're clearly making a plea to EU allies and other allies to say, look, Russia's Russia's lining up to do the same to you. So you would be best yeah. served to help support us financially and otherwise in our efforts to defend ourselves because it's only a matter of time before this expands. And I think that was that was fairly explicit, yeah. I think, uh, toward the toward the end of his comments. So I think a lot to be, yeah, I think that's I that's another big, big piece of that, that as well. But I think your point about sort of precedent setting from an international law standpoint is 100% correct as well. And so we'll be, we'll be sort of fascinating to see how, how this evolves over time. So let's now shift to the meta portion of the podcast today. And we're going to go to Jane. And I think there's three separate articles that I would say we could probably group two of them into the content moderation bucket and one of them is something a little different that has to do with the metaverse and perhaps the application of criminal law to the metaverse and, and sort of how that is playing out and the challenges there. So so maybe I'll, I'll turn it to Jane to sort of walk us through a few of these pretty fascinating items that popped up last week. Yeah, yes. If, if Nate always finds himself talking about Section 702, I always find myself talking about meta. There's always a cluster of stories that has done something that pisses someone off. So Let's start, I guess, with the sort of more forward-looking article about sexual assault in the virtual world created in the metaverse. First of all, this has, you know, this is something that has happened. The reporting takes us through an example of a woman who was basically gang raped and, you know, her avatar was gang raped in, in the virtual world. And it felt disturbing because she's, I guess she didn't take off her headset and so she could hear and and I would say that this is a problem. I'm not convinced this is a problem, though, that needs some new regulatory or legal intervention. I think, I mean, first of all, this is something that the market, specifically Meta itself, should be very motivated to fix anyways. And so Facebook can easily have its own, or Meta, I'm sorry, can easily have its own virtual police force. And, you know, um, Watching after these things, or of course it doesn't have to, you know, it can it, it can it can do all sorts of things. I I think to to restrict this kind of conduct, but then also to the extent that it's impossible to completely eliminate this, the legal solution and of course not actual rape or sexual assault, physical assault laws, but harassment. I know that some people are questioning whether criminal harassment laws can do the trick. I think so. You don't always need repetition of harassment to have a good case. If you think about like indecent exposure, those types of things often involve just a single incident that is kind of highly obnoxious and sexual in nature. And so so I think harassment law kind of is up to the task here. Jane, have you seen any big push at any state level to try to address this through a new set of criminal laws that would that would be targeted specifically to conduct in virtual worlds like this? Is that, is that, I, I haven't followed this that closely. So curious yeah. to know whether there is any 
movement or, or momentum to try to address this rather than take the analog criminal laws and kind of apply them to this setting? I'm not aware of new cyber harassment laws, new, new versions of it, but th- that doesn't mean that they don't exist. And if they don't yet, I'm sure there will be a push <laughs> that way, because I, I think when there are highly salient, specific examples of a way a new technology has created a problem, even if it's a sort of old problem, it's like catnip, I think, to lobbyists and regulators and lawmakers. It looks like they're doing something, right? So I think we're likely to see them. I'm not sure it's necessary. On the content moderation, there are a couple interesting things in the news this week. One is that Meta is having to pay a disproportionate share of the fees that are allocated to pay EU regulators who monitor content moderation as part of its Digital Services Act. And and so sort of, you know, so Facebook will have to pay something like 0.05% of its net income, but it's it's challenging this because the determination of the fee is based not only on the size or patronage of these large platforms, but also whether the platform had an income in the previous year. And so, you know, so basically large companies that are not yet profitable get to piggyback or free ride off of the companies that are profitable. And so I I think this is an interesting criticism because I do think that there is kind of an inverse correlation between a company's profits and their shadiness. You know, shady companies, they might not have enough numbers of, of consumers yet to have EU law triggered. But in any case, they, you know, it may be that the more reputable, the more responsible companies are are kind of paying for the less reputable. But the other thing, of course, that this correlates with is foreignness, right? So I think EU platforms are given a chance to grow before they have to start paying their shares. So I think that's sort of interesting. The third story I wanted to talk about was was a specific example of content moderation, which is just a friendly reminder that this stuff is extremely hard. So I wanted to know what the three of you thought of the fact. So, so just to remind us, Facebook does have a policy that it is allowed to enforce, of course, that restricts speech on its on its platform that that basically disparages people by based on their race, religion, or nationality or ethnicity. So if you see something that says, I hate Zionists or no Zionists allowed at tonight's meeting of progressive student associations. These are specific examples that Facebook is grappling with right now. Is that use of the term Zionist against the Facebook policies? Well, I, I'm not surprised to see this as as something that's now flaring up, but it's almost as if they're trying to police or moderate something that's kind of morphing in real time, right? The usage and the, and the, and the meaning. Yes. And so that is a very, very tricky thing. And sort of where you draw those lines and how you try to draw those lines to me is just, you know, if Stuart were here, of course, he'd be like, this is all a bunch of hogwash and they shouldn't be doing any of this. But well, that is one. Yeah, that's one option not taken. One route, route Right. Not taken. But, I, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, that's it's almost the most difficult question here is sort of how it's almost like, well, they they think they they can apply a we know when we see it to this type of usage and this term in particular, right? I mean, that's what it reads like to me. And so that's, I don't know how they're going to implement that if that's really what they're going to try to go forward with, or if they're going to try to draw a new bright line. It sounds like maybe they're going to draw a new bright line here. I don't know. I doubt that. I think that they are 
I think the reason that they are having some, you know, kind of debates, internal debates, is that they recognize that the, that word, you know, Zionism and, or anti-Zionism or whatever, that still for at least some subset of the population has the meaning of, I guess, the Israeli government. So, so banning the term Zionist might at least have the appearance of suggesting that they're kind of in, instituting a a type of no government criticism rule. And I don't think that they'd want to be perceived that way. However, I have a hard time. I mean, I, I do think that Zionism means something other than the Israeli government. And I don't think there'd be any doubt that if people were saying no people who disagree with the current, you know, with the decisions of the Israeli government allowed at tonight's meeting, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. The word Zionism is, as you say, it, it's not only shifting, it means different things to different people, much like the phrase from the river to the sea. I think that's another example. Like, So to those, I have been in the camp of thinking that companies like Facebook do have, that they are at liberty to set for themselves whatever policies they want in terms of content moderation. And of course, they have an interest, I think, in doing it as close to clear principles as they can. But even with the best intentions, it's very difficult. Yeah, I would agree with that. So I'm sure that's not the last we're going to hear on that one. And I'm sure I'm sure once Stuart's back, he'll throw some hand grenades at that policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Moving to, to finish to finish and close out the roundup, we're going to kind of come back around full circle to go back to unfairness in the FTC. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to turn it over to Gus to talk about another interesting case that has just been brought and what the latest is there. Yeah, and I'll treat this more as a quick hit looking at the clock, but the FTC just brought a case against a company called Blackbaud that experienced a data breach. And the interesting thing about the complaint is the extent to which it relies on standalone unfairness claims, including claims uh, the FTC alleges did not have a, a data retention policy or at least a sufficient data retention policy that and the notices, the breach notifications understated the severity of the breach. And generally, the FTC alleges had insufficient information security practices. And all of these are alleged as pure unfairness concerns, not deception concerns. And this is going to run into the same issues. These are novel claims to be brought under standalone unfairness claims, especially the data retention, lack of data retention policy. And the FTC is going to run into the same issue that it confronted with Kochava, which is showing actual harm. I guess we could ask as an exercise, do we think that data breach notifications actually help consumers at this point? I don't know. All of these claims, you can plausibly squint and some people have understandable concerns that data breaches cause actual harm to consumers, but the FTC is probably going to need to do some substantiation of these claims in order to satisfy the court. Maybe one quick question before we head down the home stretch here, but why not bring the claim on the breach notification under deception theory if the if the idea is that there was it was either an affirmative misrepresentation or there was some omission there in terms of the scope and character of the breach why not pursue that why yeah. why go under an unfairness theory I, i've been wondering that exact thing my expectation is and i think that this as a legal matter could be correct the breach notification is encouraging consumers to 
engage in self-help or to reach out to the services of a third party, not to conduct business with BlackBot itself, the subject of the complaint itself. So arguably, it's not a deception issue in the traditional sense. Deception is generally, hey, I'm trying to deceive you into doing business with me, not I'm trying to deceive you into not thinking that I'm a bad person, so my reputation isn't harmed, so other people will continue to do business with me. But generally, I mean, I've, I've written on this, generally, these information security sort of concerns I prefer to think of them and treat them under a deception sort of approach. It's really hard to know what good or reasonable in any circumstance information security practices should be. Sure, there's low-hanging fruit, and it looks like this company might legitimately have been failing to do the low-hanging fruit stuff. But have companies have a formal policy, and if they violate it, first, if you have them have a formal policy, get some thinking about what they're doing and provides everyone on notice about what they're doing. And then if they violate it, it's a much easier claim to bring. That That's how I prefer to think about these sort of cases. But this will be a, another FTC trying to break new ground. And you look at the statements of how these failures affected consumers, and you think TransUnion and Ramirez and the standing cases, and that this isn't a traditional Article Three standing issue since this is regulation. This isn't a, a private law suit. But the courts have a lot of skepticism about how do you substantiate consumer harm in these sort of claims. Okay. So with that, I think we are now firmly heading down the home stretch. We have a handful of items to cover as quick hits and updates. We're going to move from FTC to FCC. And an item that we did cover last week on episode 490 about the ban on AI-generated voice cloning and robocalls. We were, Stewart and company last week were expecting this, talked about it a bit. So now the ban actually went into effect, was unanimously adopted by FCC. So Jane, Gus, what do we make of this now that this has been enacted? So I'll start by saying as someone who most people think I reflexively hate all regulation and we should burn down every agency out there, I think this is pretty squarely within the ambit of the TCPA. I think artificial phone calls, that's what these are. There are legitimate concerns here. The caveat that I would add to the potential effectiveness is that the TCPA has longstanding exceptions for politically related robocalls, and that's probably where the greatest concern is with these. So how effective will this actually be to the greatest area of concern, especially in election season? And there, there's a concern that, hey, I as a consumer know that the FTC has outlawed artificial robocalls. So when President Biden, I get a phone call from him telling me that he enjoys eating babies and thinks that we should blow up the moon and that he's best friend, whatever crazy stuff that some nefarious actor is going to have him saying. I might think, well, the FTC said it's illegal for this to be artificial, so I guess this must be really President Biden saying this stuff. Maybe that's a concern. But on the big scale of things, yeah, I think that this is actually something that the agency has statutory authority to do. It's a legitimate concern and good for them. Yeah, I, I agree. I think even on that potentially troubling exception down the road, I do think that while we might not be able to ban AI-generated political calls that are non-deceptive, 
like, you know, using generative AI just to make a generic voice that says something for political purposes. I do think that deceptive political advertising, fraudulent advertising could probably be regulated within the constraints of, you know, First Amendment and other things. And then also, you know, yeah, the the TCPA is still good because push messaging through your telephone is obnoxious. And so we are now firmly in the era of, if not either pulling our content ourselves or having it be curated based on our, you know, preferences and, and whatnot. And so, yeah, nobody likes robocalls. And so this is a piece of legislation that even good libertarians like us seem to like. I'm sure not the last we've heard of it in an election year, as as you both pointed out. So moving on to number two, Nate, an update warning from CISA and FBI on a, a Chinese cyber threat actor set and critical infrastructure threats in the U.S. We covered this quite extensively last week, but any quick thoughts or takeaways on the latest updates from this past week? Yeah, a few, I guess. One is, I don't think it's anything new or surprising, you know, given the state of the relationship with China. So this feels to me a little bit like trying to raise vigilance among the private sector and critical infrastructure in particular to the U.S. is almost certainly taking steps to counter some of these moves, one would presume. Three, this is one of many reasons I think the U.S. is trying to navigate the broader relationship to, to avoid outright conflict so that you know you don't see these types of things coming to fruition ultimately. And fourth, and maybe most importantly, and a bit of a pet peeve of mine is there's a tendency in cyber policy circles to look at everything through the soda straw of cybersecurity, but it exists in a much larger world and all of these things are interrelated, right? You know, this is not the first time Chinese actors have gained access to critical infrastructure. It won't be the last. You can't defend your way out of this problem. And there's a reason they're not crossing these lines yet. And, you know, in some cases, they may not even cross them in the case of an outright conflict with the U.S., depending on what the potential consequences are. And so I think it is important to maintain a level of deterrence and prevent them from acting because they're going to get these opportunities at some point. Yeah. We have to think more broadly about yeah. the problem, whole of government approach as opposed to just yeah. defense. Agree, agree completely on all fronts. Of course, the specter of a invasion of Taiwan in the background is kind of what's what's maybe amping up the attention yeah. on this one. But I think all of that is exactly right. Gus, uh, interesting item out of Korea on the Anti-Monopoly Platform Act and perhaps a pumping of the brakes at the behest of some large U.S. considerations and companies. What What's the latest on that? Yes, South Korea has been considering basically their version of the DMA. They've actually been considering something like this for several years. And the regulators, the academic community, there actually has been very little support for it in the country. There was some movement this year to try and get that enacted through legislation instead of regulation. And it looked for a hot moment like it it might happen. And no, it's not happening. And I, I don't think that this is actually U.S. interests that have slowed it down. There's been longstanding skepticism in South Korea over it. And it, it's for obvious reasons. Unlike the European Union, which is a vampiric parasite on American industry and doesn't have any tech industry of its own, South Korea has a tech industry. And sure, they've got some concerns about international players, but they also have concerns about harming their own industry. So when push comes to shove, they recognize competition is good. Let's let firms innovate and do stuff 
and celebrate that instead of doing this stupid thing that the European Union has done with the DMA. I guess you know where I stand on that. Uh, we do. Uh, and and I think also perhaps in the background, and this plays into the item I want to raise quickly, which is China, of course, in the background and the sort of evolving dynamic with South Korea and China and, and obviously a lot of that US driven. And there's a interesting item came out late last week about the White House announcing or at least it being reported that they were considering strongly restrictions on Chinese smart cars and electric vehicles being imported into the US. Again, this is not entirely surprising. This is sort of EVs and, and EV batteries and, and the like are really a hot topic in the CFIUS world. They're a subject of obviously the tariffs and a lot of other sort of foreign investment and inbound technology regulation. But the idea that there could be broader restrictions that are not based in the tariffs, that are not based in some of these other existing authorities, that would basically perhaps restrict or prohibit any Chinese cars or components, no matter where they were ultimately assembled. So Mexico is obviously a key hub now in terms of manufacturing and where a lot of these items are coming together. The U.S. has been working with Mexico and trying to, I think, implore them to exercise some scrutiny in terms of the money and the inflow of goods and capital that they're getting from China. So this is, it looks like perhaps an area where there could be some further regulation coming in the not too distant future. Again, I think very much of a piece with the way that the current administration has been looking at these things for for what it's worth. Trump has said that he would, you know, of course, put like 80% tariffs on Chinese EVs if he's reelected. So I think more to come in this space. And, and of course, at the end of the day, this is all about data, like we've been talking about, because these smart cars, they all call back to China. They process data in China. There's a lot of, again, fears similar to the ones we, we talked about earlier in terms of what that gives the Chinese government in terms of its visibility into certain activities of persons or locations in the US and what's going on there from a strategic standpoint. So again, more to come there, but an interesting item on Chinese smart cars. Bringing it home, two lighter items, perhaps one for Gus on climate change and a big study that was just published recently. And what can we take from from the climate change study and, and people's ability to change or not change their views on these things. Yeah. So Stuart would love this. The real story here in my mind isn't the climate change. This is a study of like 60,000 people over whether nudge style interventions actually change their behavior. And the answer is no, they don't. Or to the extent that any of the, it's, I think they studied some massive number of every nudge style intervention you can imagine. And a couple of them had very minor effects. So behavioral economics, nudging ourselves into a better future. Not so much. <laughs> very minor, very minor from the data. And then finally, I'm going to bring it home with the Super Bowl. So for anybody who watched last night, a large number of AI related ads during the broadcast that could hardly be avoided, including from big names, Microsoft, Google, were trotting out their sort of AI related offerings and a number of other players as well. And I couldn't help but think whether this was the moment the AI sort of jumped the shark, to use the term of art. Similar, perhaps, to what we saw two years ago when it was crypto everywhere during the Super Bowl, and including FTX and some other some other brands that are not faring so well these days. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Although, of course, at the end of the day, I don't know if anybody's really going to remember this as the AI Super Bowl. It's, it's obviously going to be the Taylor Swift Super Bowl. So with that, I think we are wrapped. Thank you to Jane, Gus, and Nate for joining us. 
For our listeners, send your questions, comments, and feedback to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content and we'll read it on the air as long as it's entertaining. This has been episode 491 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. Sure, once Stewart's back, he'll throw some hand grenades at that policy. Yeah. <laughs>